When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Michael, have you got a minute? Michael, please don't save the car. Toto? Yes, it's called a motor race, okay? Toto, we went to car racing. Monaco was a washout for Ferrari. Overtakes on the streets of Monaco. Just a shame we couldn't see them. Numero, win numero tres. We have a missive from Race Control. They say they were monitoring a severe downpour, and as it arrived during the start procedure, the safety car start and its associated procedures were implemented. The cars back out onto the track for the first time. That is Nicholas Latifi down at the Lowe's hairpin. Gaetan, the car just didn't turn. Gazi Stroll Latifi coming in to change onto the intermediate tyres, just throwing a little bit of a gamble. Sergio Perez who pits from third place. We look to see the tyres that are going on. It is the green-striped intermediates. Esteban Ocon has Lewis Hamilton right behind him. So our race leader, Leclerc, pitting. His teammate Carlos Sainz staying out. Perez is only 11 seconds behind Sainz now. Stay out, stay out. That's Leclerc. Why, what the pattern do? As Sergio Perez comes in to make a pit stop. Uh, it's the right time to get on those tyres. They've finally switched on. Sergio Perez is going to come out into this race, but ahead of Carlos Sainz. Oh, that is the Haas of Mick Schumacher. It's Perez in the Principality. He wins the Monaco Grand Prix. Hello, I'm Shannon Mabry, your host of the Race Directors podcast, and I'm joined by the soon-to-be blue-flagged backmarkers, F1 journalist Ed Spencer, serial podcaster Joe Spagnoli. Sadly, mysterious F1 Twitter menace unpaid intern is still doing his paid interning. However, we are also joined by a very special guest this week, our good friend, aerodynamics expert and F1 Twitter superstar, Bryson Sullivan, otherwise known as At Natural Paradigm. Bryson, how are you? It's lovely to have you on. I'm quite well. Thank you for having me. We are very, very, very excited to have your input this week. So obviously, over the weekend, we were in Monaco. Ed, you were there, our man on the ground, on the grid, in the press room. How was it? Did you have fun, I guess, is the most important thing? It was thoroughly enjoyable. As always, the south of France 
in late May, late spring, early summer is a joy to be in. And Monaco is a continual joy, or even if there is a big rumour going around that we may be going there for the last time. But yes, it was a thoroughly good time. The media centre gets us well refreshed with bread, cheese, bread, cheese, croissants, 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 instant coffee, uh, which were all leaked up by over 200 journalists who repeatedly grabbed them. Uh, but and also the instant coffee did us all the trick. And also um, Red Bull hosted a very nice party on Friday night and they did a very good Aperol spritz and it was a free bar. So a nice weekend. And I hope it isn't the last time that Formula One heads to Monte Carlo. Yeah, a nice weekend. Shame that you had to sit around for a little while as we had many, many, many delays, which I think a lot of people found frustrating. Bryson, obviously, how did you feel about the delays, the fact that we had to wait so long for the race to start? It was getting a little bit tedious at points, I felt. There are certain pieces of information that seem to be coming out about electrical issues causing a delay with the start, but there seemed to be an overall impression that the race directors weren't confident that drivers could drive these cars in the wet. Uh, We have intermediate and full wet tires to drive in the wet. They didn't seem to be given an opportunity to do so. That being said, when they finally did get going on the formation lap, Nils Satifi did uh, crash his car at uh, Lowe's Hairpin, which isn't great, but he made it around. So I was happy to see the cars finally get going. I mean, if it was going to be anyone, it was going to be Nicholas Latifi, right? Let's be honest. <laughs> uh, to be fair, I would have crashed far earlier in the lap. Let's just say that. Mm-hmm. This is true, but this is why we're not Formula One drivers. Just a quick anecdote, the press room. Some of them were laughing. They couldn't believe it because it just, they knew it was going to be him. Joe, what were your thoughts? Did you enjoy it at the very least? It was definitely more exciting, I suppose, than your average Monaco Grand Prix. As you said, we actually saw some overtakes this week. Well, I, we, we were aware of the existence of some overtakes if you were watching the timing screen. We didn't actually see any of them because, as per usual, Monaco's in-house TV direction was... I'm going to say abysmal, uh, but I did have great fun watching the changing conditions, the fact that there were always two or three different compounds going to war with each other on the track. I really enjoyed Formula Canada at the back as well. You had the top 10, which were very stable, the next eight, which were completely rotated, and then the two Maple Leafs at the back. And I thought Stroll was supposed to be good as well. But, you know, against my sockbox, my hatred of this Grand Prix venue, which I'm sure will come across in the next half hour, first half of the race was really good. It's the best start to a Monaco Grand Prix in recent memory. Um, It's just a shame that while the first half of the race is what Monaco can be to many people, the second half of the race was a painful reminder of what Monaco actually is. It really was, wasn't it? And I agree with you. I feel like at points during his career, I've rated Lance Stroll fairly as, you know, considering he's a paid driver, daddy bought him his seat. He can drive a decent race and we've seen him do very well, but not this season, apparently. He's had an absolute shocker of a weekend. But if we're going to talk about shockers of a weekend, I think number one priority is going to need to be Haas. Because what the hell happened to Haas this weekend? Neither drivers finished the race. To be honest, I didn't even know that Magnussen had retired because they didn't even mention it, I don't think, until Mick crashed and you got an immediate shot of Kevin walking across the paddock going, what's going on? And they said, oh, yes, by the way, Magnussen's retired. And I thought, when the hell did that happen? That's the second time that we've seen Mick have what was quite a scary crash at first, I think, you know, where they've had to pan the cameras away and wait until he's out of the car to see if he's okay. Luckily, of course, he was absolutely fine and got straight out of the car. But I mean, not a good weekend for Haas, especially after the start to the season that they've had. What do you think, Bryson? 
Yeah, it's definitely been a, a difficult couple of races. I, I too was perplexed by seeing a crash and then immediately seeing Maxi walking around and I said, well, wait, who crashed? Was it Mick or, or was it Kevin? Um, it certainly wasn't really a great race. You know, after Kevin's contact with Lewis uh, in Spain, he also was towards the back of the grid. And then he later himself realized that maybe it wasn't exactly Lewis's fault <laughs> that they kind of came together. Um, but yeah, I think as far as Mick goes, I mean, they're a conversation will be had. I, I'm not exactly sure when the time will come to have it, but he hasn't scored any points yet for the team, to my knowledge. And he has had some really significant crashes that have a big impact on the cost cap. Um, so I'm, I'm very curious to see how that develops. I did go back and look at his crash in Monaco. He, he was off the racing line by maybe an inch or two, but it was an inch too far and it was a, a big shunt. Ed, you saw it live from the press box. How did it make you feel in that moment? Were you a little bit, a little bit scared at first? Well, yeah, of course. You want you know, these modern day Formula One cars, and thankfully they are. To see the driver get out of the car unharmed, but obviously Mick was perfectly fine. It shows the strength of. Um, I, I can't really defend it. It was the simple him pushing a little bit, a touch too hard in the wet, and for him, he it's the last thing that he needs considering around that. His future in Formula One isn't particularly safe. Um, but again, other drivers did it in the weekend. Daniel Ricciardo did it in FP2. He slid off the line and banged into the barrier. Although, yeah, not what Haas need. They need. They really needed to rebound off to Miami, but it's kind of just snowballing a little bit. And with the damage as well, it's not really what they need. So they need to rebound in Baku and hope that we have another one of those crazy races and they can pick up a good haul of points because at the moment, they're starting to lose a little bit of that momentum they had in Bahrain. Maybe also in Jeddah, you could say. They had that blip in Australia, of course, but they hit, hit back in Emma. So things need to be improved at us. Yeah, I, I must say very briefly, one of my highlights of the weekend was watching the always outstanding Monaco Marshalls wheel away, you know, the rear car end of a Haas, you know, a gearbox and rear suspension. Just wheel it off away off of the uh, track without breaking stride. They really treated it like a very expensive wheelbarrow and i greatly appreciated watching that <laughs> oh to be fair it did give us some great shots of the haas rear suspension and even daniel ricardo's crash gave us some some unobstructed views of the floor of his car same thing with perez and and uh, signs we got some great shots of the other floors Honestly, I think especially given that we're in the first year of a new set of regulations, these crashes are costing teams more than just replacement parts, but also a little bit of secrecy because we're getting some absolutely amazing shots at things like their floors when the cars are being lifted up. And then all of the other teams are, you know, emailing the journalists saying, have you got a high res version of this that we can have a look at, please? So yeah, very costly for them. But I think Another team we should probably talk about if we're going to talk about washout weekends, sadly, is Ferrari because they had it all going their way. And once again, it just hasn't quite worked out, particularly for Charles Leclerc. Although I will say, I think some of his negativity maybe is a little bit unnecessary because at the end of the day, the achievement for him is that he's actually finished his first race at Monaco in his professional career. And that in and of itself, I think, breaks a certain curse that he was experiencing, but also completely understand why he would be upset to find himself off the podium after the the race that he was having. I'm going to go to our resident Italian for his thoughts on this. Joe, Mr. Spagnoli, how did you feel after seeing that at the weekend, that catastrophe? 
I was impressed that Charles Leclerc was able to limit his swearing to that extent. I know if I'd been in the car, it would have been a lot more explosive and long range and longer lasting as well. I, I just, it's not the double stack and the fact that they put science out ahead of him. That's just circumstances. It's for me, it's the micro stupidity of what Ferrari did in terms of strategy. First of all, Leclerc coming in first, expecting to be put on dry tires, but they put him on inters for some reason, and then immediately realised their mistake a couple of laps later, by which point Perez has already got the advantage which he was working very well towards. But what I can't understand is, on the lap when they both came in, Sainz followed by Leclerc, there was a seven-second gap between them at the start of the lap. Sainz was on clapped wet tyres, tread wearing down on a rapidly drying track, unusually quickly drying track by Monaco standards, Leclerc's on fresh inters, Did Ferrari just not think that that seven-second gap was going to disappear? Of course it was. The pace of the weekend, even if they'd been on the same tyres, Leclerc would have been taking several tenths out of him. So a double stop was a silly decision at the best of times. And even if you'd kept Leclerc out for just one more lap before you put him on tyres, everything suggested that he was going to come out ahead of Max Verstappen. And in the end, for Leclerc, that's what this all matters. He They managed to turn a 13, 14 point swing in favour of Leclerc into a three point swing in favour of Verstappen. Two definite one two finishes in a row, or at least likely one two finishes in a row, scuppered by none other than the Scuderia themselves. And what's the, what's the weirdest thing? They didn't really seem particularly ready when they saw Charles. They saw him come in and think, oh my God, it's that, that's, the, that's the other car. And they, they panicked. This reminds me a lot of Daniel Ricciardo in Monaco in 2016 when Red Bull were not ready for him to come in. And that cost him the race. And during the, the rather sanguine uh, post-race media session that I was invited in, which included the connection going stale, and Charles looked very disconsolate, very much like he wanted to be anywhere else in the world. And I don't really blame him. I think it was a bizarre and frankly stupid decision to to pit him in the first place and I think the double stack just just didn't work so they threw away a potential one too as well yeah they they certainly uh, committed an an own goal on themselves uh with this particular race but it's also true that they had some very strange uh back marker behavior including Nicholas Satifi and Alex Albon ignoring conservatively I want to say about 15 blue flags roughly. And I think the only reason that Claire got past him was because Alex Albon locked up into San Devot. <laughs> so that certainly didn't help their cause either. And we didn't even see this as well. I was wondering how he managed to get past Albon. The Monaco TV direction, we had like three cars go off on the exit of San Devot. None the wiser. Couldn't agree more, chaps. But let's talk Mercedes now. George Russell has maintained his record or streak of finishing in the top five of every single race so far this season. Cracking for George. Love that for him. British Minister of Defence. Good job, my friend. Lewis Hamilton came in eighth. Bryson, I know that you are very much Team LH. How are you feeling about his performance this weekend? Yeah, I mean, I think all of these things go back to qualifying, really. I mean, there are any number of things that people around you can do to you to ruin your race if they're close to you. If you have a better qualifying position, suddenly the world opens up to you. I think by Lewis's own admission, he was in the wrong engine mode for his first flying lap in Q3, and he never even got a second lap in in, in Q3 uh, because of uh, Perez's crash. Um, so it, it's certainly true that there are some things over the course of the season that George has benefited from. You know, For example, if you go back to Spain, uh, Russell and Perez had significant contact tire to tire to not result in a puncture whereas Hamilton and uh, Magnussen did have a puncture. 
So that in itself is an example of a kind of a lucky thing. But to be fair, you have to give George credit for being great, right? I think he people people always view him as the kind of a number two driver. He's never a number two driver. He was always a a number one driver in training. He, he just has the good fortune of being trained by the uh, seven times world champion Lewis Hamilton. So give George credit for being in a in a good position and being close enough for small differences to actually make a difference. It's difficult for Lewis at the moment. You know, it's certainly the issues that Mercedes were dealing with in Monaco were more related to vertical ride quality than high speed porpoising in the sense that they've had before. But still, you have to produce a car that's fast and the car isn't quite fast enough at the moment. I'm very much looking forward to Baku and especially Canada uh, to seeing how that car develops. Now, I obviously want to talk about the race winner, Checo Perez. But before we do, can we talk about Fernando Alonso, please, and his brief stint as safety car driver? I found this very confusing and I think I tweeted about it, but I don't particularly understand why it happened because obviously by this point, Ocon had his five second penalty and was a couple of cars behind Alonso. And I feel like by bunching everyone up instead of keeping it pushing so that Ocon behind him could attempt to create a gap, he kind of ensured that Ocon's penalty was going to push him right out of the points and from a team perspective a constructor's perspective that seems like a pretty silly idea because i believe that they stated the reason for it was to hold hamilton back but that doesn't was, was that something that they said or is that something that well, i've as, seen on twitter as if, but, as if hamilton was going to get past at monaco anyway precisely yeah, alonso <laughs> get past fernando yeah, alonso so i don't think he needed to drive at 30 miles an hour to make that happen but yeah. it just seemed from a team perspective and from from the the view of Ocon's penalty, it just seemed very strange to me. And I'm not, it maketh no sense in my eyes. Yeah, I, I imagine well, the only person who really understands Fernando Alonso's state of mind is Fernando. Uh, but if you're asking me if the posited explanation as to why he was driving so slowly makes sense, I'm going to say it doesn't. And that's all I have to say about it. <laughs> I think, unfortunately, Monaco pack racing is, is part and parcel of the street because of the fact it's so tight. But yeah, it was... Slightly odd, but I think Alonso was in that mood of, I don't care. You know, I might as well just hold everyone up. Get still called the Piranha Club for a reason. It's a dog-eat-dog world, my points. Because at the end of the day, it is the Piranha Club and it's your teammate. And regardless of who's driving next to you, you're going to think for yourself. Now, we are briefly, obviously, going to touch on Checo Perez before we move on. We have to, because that was a very emotional podium and... I was rooting for him in the final stages of the race because it's nice to see him win. It's nice to see Max Verstappen's kind of supposed second driver winning. And I think after last week as well, it was very, very nice to see that result for him and see him put in a position where the teams couldn't invert their drivers. Because I think that's the position that both Ferrari and Red Bull found themselves in is because they were all sandwiched in amongst each other with both of their supposed second drivers ahead of their first they were in a position where they couldn't team orders their way out of it because each of them had uh, the opposite team stuck in between them. But it was nice to see, and it was emotional to see Checo crying on the podium. Obviously, winning Monaco is a really, really big deal. Ed, you saw it firsthand. Was it as emotional in person, or am I just being a wimp on, on, on my couch watching it on TV? Uh, well, considering that my view is from the television. Yeah, it looked very emotional. I think wins like this for, for Checo mean ever so much more because of the fact that, you know, the winter of 2020, he didn't know where he was going to go because his Formula 1 future was on the verge of being put out in the fact that he didn't really have a driver. Um, it was either Haas or nobody else. 
And now he's cherishing every moment he gets, and particularly when he's got a top car under him in the Red Bull. And, you know, winning the Monaco Grand Prix is every driver's dream. You ask every driver on that grid, the one race they want to win other than the home race, they'll want to win Monaco. And for him, in particular, being a fan of Ayrton Senna, it's it's doubly special. And he drove, he deserved this win because in Spain he drove beautifully, but they moved him around. So I, I would think he was owed a win, and he's got it, and he, he deserves it. And, you know, what? there's nothing really stopping him now. He's still he's right in this title fight. And, you know, I think the whole comment that Jos Verstappen came out today saying he didn't believe that he was right to favour Checo over Max was, was frankly hogwash in my eyes. I think you don't want to cause discontent in your son's team knowing that they both get on. They both were fine. Max was not in a bad mood at all about finishing third. He was perfectly fine that Checo won. And they worked together as a team to do, I think. So a great day for Mexico, a great day for, for Checo Perez, who was throwing everyone into the, into the pool. I wasn't included. Of course, I think I was stuck in the media centre waiting for uh, an FIA decision on the exit uh, chaos. So, yeah, great day for, for Checo Perez. Yeah, I was just going to say briefly with regard to Josh Verstappen's comments, I thought Red Bull played that very fairly and precisely to Shannon's point. The cars could not be inverted precisely because of the other team's car being there. But regarding Josh's comments, it it's almost like when you're accustomed to privilege, like fairness seems unfair to you, right? Like when you're, when you're accustomed to be, you know, being shown the way in every circumstance, actually having a fair competition seems strange. And that, that's all I would attribute that to. I don't put very much weight behind the words of Jos Verstappen, but yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. And that very much feels like the situation. But now, gentlemen, we are going to take a walk, probably the only grid walk that most of us will do, at least this year. Let's be honest. We're going to go to my favourite place, and that is Gossip Grid. Welcome to Gossip Grid, the part of the podcast where I impart unto you, dear listeners, the latest whispers flying around the paddock. Au revoir, Paul Ricard. After returning to Formula One's calendar in 2018 after a decade-long absence, the French Grand Prix track appears to be at the greatest risk of being dropped if Formula One is to stay within its 24-race-per-year agreement, with the addition of new tracks such as Las Vegas and a return to Qatar and possibly China next year. Word on the grid is that organisers of the Grand Prix have now accepted that a rotation deal is their only shot at remaining in the championship, and that seeking an annual contract is probably not feasible. But rumours are also swirling that Formula One are also struggling to come to an agreement with Monaco, whose contract ends this year. Could we see both races fall from the calendar? And one Checo Perez could very much be in the doghouse right now. As he announces the extension of his contract at Red Bull, videos are surfacing online of his rather rambunctious celebrations after his race win in Monaco this weekend where someone who appears to be Sergio appears to be getting a little too close to comfort with some young ladies at parties that are very much not his wife, who only recently gave birth to their third child. Mistaken identity or big trouble at home for the Mexican race winner? We'll have to wait and see. That's all the gossip I have for you this week, listeners, but rest assured, my ears are always open. I mean, I know you guys probably wouldn't be too sad to say goodbye to Paul Ricard anyway. I'm one of Paul Ricard's most staunch defenders. 
That's what. That's one of the few soapboxes I have about French Grand Prix. Shannon. Yeah, I, I really like it personally. However, I wouldn't. It's not one of like the ultimate. We must protect them at all cost venues. But it's the only place in France that can. Why? It's the only place in France that can feasibly host a Grand Prix. Because if I mention the Circuit de Nevers Magnicourt, Ed comes out in sweats. So it has to stay to represent France. Not Magny Snor. Magny Get it right. I, it's not surprising the French Grand Prix is going to go off the calendar. Ever since it came back in 2018, it's been riddled with problems. It's the fact it's located in the middle of nowhere. Um, it annoyed a lot of people by being disorganised in the first race. And it's really no, not surprising that Formula 1 has said, look, you take this rotation deal or you go. Because unfortunately, with the amount of races that are queuing up to join the F1 calendar, there is a question mark over whether do we need to come back to Paul Ricard every year. But Joe is very correct. The only French circuit that can really feasibly host a race. I'm surprised, Ed, you haven't mentioned the possibility of a Streets of Paris <laughs> race. <laughs> That's in the plan. That's in the plan. I am planning to head to France in July, so I'm, I'm going to propose a deal. So I, I would imagine that many of our listeners are not familiar with your uh, grand campaign for a street race in Paris. But this is very much your agenda, uh, one of the highest points on your agenda. And yeah, I too am surprised that you didn't bring up the idea of a Paris street race in response to uh, Paul Ricard going, to be honest. But you never know. Maybe one day you'll get your way, Ed. But can we talk about Checo for a minute, please? Because all of these rumours and these videos, I mean, uh, has everyone seen the videos? Bryson, have you seen the videos? Because they're mm, rather damning. Yeah, I, I made the uh, hilarious mistake of seeing a video and assuming that was the video and forming my opinion on that. And then I was uh, made aware of other videos as well, which are slightly more conclusive. It's not great uh, in any given situation. Um, it's not really my place to speak on it. It's It really shouldn't really happen. Um, but I'm, I'm not the gossip king that maybe some others might be. <laughs> no, it's not my place to... Well, I, I am the gossip queen. No, it's not my place to speak on either, but Perez did look a little hungover the next day considering he was staggering to get off the Red Bull racing yacht. No, no, that, that, that is a cosmic understatement. He looked like he was a, like a vampire like being forced <laughs> to go under the sun for the first time. I mean, he was, he was well knackered. <laughs> I love that you guys think he was hungover because to me, he very much looked like he was yeah. still hammered. I don't think the hangover had hit him yet at that point. Very much not. Now, it's time for one of my favorite segments in this podcast, and that is looking back with Mr. Ed Spencer. I didn't have much to choose from in terms of classic races from our next round in Baku. We've only been on the F1 calendar for six years, so I thought it was wise to travel back 12 months when vaccines, easing of restrictions and tyres were the hot topics of June 2021. Round 6, the 2021 Formula 1 World Championship, and already the anticipation around a potential title battle was at a fever pitch. After Max Verstappen had taken the championship lead with an easy win in Monaco, whilst Lewis Hamilton was down in seventh after a miserable race that was spent stuck behind Pierre Gasly's AlphaTauri. But neither of the championship contenders could stick it on pole in Baku, as Charles Leclerc timed his lap to perfection, putting his Ferrari on pole for the second race in succession. And unlike in Monaco, he did actually start the race. Hamilton would start second, and of Verstappen, who was alongside his former teammate Gasly on the second row of the grid, whilst Lance Stroll and Antonio Giovinazzi would start from the back after crashing and qualifying. 
2021 Azerbaijan Grand Prix would be the last not to include any fans, as from the French Grand Prix onwards, crowds of over 10,000 plus people would be allowed in through the gates as the world began to reopen again as countries began rolling out vaccine programmes. Lights out, Leclerc held his lead out of turn one ahead of Hamilton and Verstappen. Leclerc gets away well ahead of Hamilton and Verstappen and then you got Sainz and Gasly scrapping away behind them. Gasly tried to hold on to fourth until Sergio Perez rocketed past the Frenchman on the run down to turn three. Leclerc couldn't stretch out a big enough gap out to Hamilton and by the end of lap two, the Brit had breezed past the Monegasque to lead with Verstappen following suit four laps later. Perez too was now on a roll, and with the use slipstream, he waltzed past the clerk onto the final podium position, with the top three making a breakaway from the Ferrari man who now fell into the clutches of Gasly. Esteban Ocon's race was run on lap three with a turbocharger problem, whilst Carlos Sainz added further misery to Ferrari's rapidly unravelling race, on lap 11 going down an escape road to turn 10, costing him a load of positions. As Hamilton pitted from the lead. Hamilton, it's a slow stop again, but he had to wait for the other car that was coming down uh, the pit lane. Gasly's unintended intervention paid dividends for Red Bull, as not only did they manage to get Verstappen back out in front of the Brit, but Perez too, despite his stop being slightly slower. With the leaders all making their stop, Sebastian Vettel, who started 11th on the grid, now led for four laps as his Aston Martin team gambled on him and Lance Stroll staying out and doing a longer stint on the start in their starting compound of tyres. Stroll was running fourth when disaster struck as his right rear tyre exploded, sending him headfirst into the barrier and bringing out the safety car on lap 31. When the race restarted, Verstappen put some distance between himself and Perez, whilst Vettel nipped inside the clerk at turn one to move up to fifth on his fresher tyres. That became fourth as the German used his slipstream to ease past Gasly, although a trip to the podium was unlikely. But just as it seemed that Verstappen had got 25 points locked up. Look at, oh, and it's Max Verstappen! Max Verstappen on the main straight! Leading this race, now out of this race, Sergio Perez leads from Lewis Hamilton. That is a 200 mile an hour crash. Costing him a certain 25 points and narrowly avoiding serious injury. Verstappen's smash had caused race control to decide that enough was enough, and the race got brought to a halt with three to go, giving the teams a chance to fit fresher rubber to avoid a potential puncture. As a standing restart loomed for the two-lap dash to the flag, Perez would start on pole ahead of Hamilton and Vettel. Brakes smoking on Lewis Hamilton's car. Perez on pole. Hamilton alongside him on the front row. Perez gets away well. Hamilton will wheel spin. Sebastian Vettel is coming at them as well. Perez tries to cut off Hamilton. Who locks up and goes straight on? Perez leads from Sebastian Vettel. At start number two, Hamilton was marginally in front of Perez on the approach to turn one. But as he came into the corner, he switched on the infamous brake magic button, throwing away any chance of points and giving Perez a clear run to his second Grand Prix win, with Vettel an excellent second ahead of Gasly, who was back on the podium for the first time since his fairytale victory at the 2020 Italian Grand Prix. Away from the cameras, Nikita Mazepin and Mick Schumacher nearly suffered a terrifying collision after the overly zealous Russian pay driver pulled his German teammate tantalisingly close to the armco barrier, thankfully without an incident.
And it seems ironic that we will be going to Baku in two weeks' time for yet another Azerbaijan Grand Prix, and we should be. We could be in for an even more interesting race with these cars around the tight, twisty street to the Azerbaijani capital. And, well, let's just hope there's no brake magic or tyre problems this time around. You know how I've said in the well, you know how I've said in the past that tracks like Paul Ricard and especially Barcelona are the tracks that most needed these new cars. Baku is the one that least needs these new cars. If the common pattern of these cars making bad races more interesting is followed, then Baku is just going to have like what eight overtakes a lap. It's going to be insane. It's going to be fun, is what it is. Although one thing I did not appreciate about that segment from you, Ed Spencer, is that you reminded me that Nikita Mazepin exists. And quite frankly, I'd forgotten (laughs) about him. I wasn't going to be overly nice about what he did to Mick Schumacher and what was a frankly, yeah, egregious piece of driving that would probably have seen him banned off the roads in in any country. But I thought it was right to mention, considering we needed a nice little end to it, I thought I'd quickly just mention what he actually did. I think it's also a perfect segue into mentioning as well that towards the end of last year, Nikita Mazepin uh, was kicked out of a Red Bull party that he wasn't invited to, whereas our very own Ed Spencer in Monaco for the first time was invited to the Red Bull party. <laughs> Levels, Nikita. Yes, let, let the record show Nikita Mazepin was definitely kicked out of that party, regardless of whatever PR uh, words were said after the fact. He, he definitely was. Facts, absolute facts, and nothing but. Now, gents, it's time for our news of the week. So I want to hear your favourite little news story that's come out of Formula One this week. I shall start with mine. And that is someone that we've already talked about actually today, and that's Checo Perez. The fact that he has signed a two-year contract extension at Red Bull after being overheard on his way up to the podium on Saturday, Sunday, sorry, saying, I probably signed too early. And he was then questioned about it afterwards. It has now been revealed that perhaps this might have forced their hand a little. But yes, he has, in fact, extended his contract with Red Bull. Might have been a good idea to have waited until after Monaco because he might have been able to get a little bit more money out of them. But there you go. He's staying for another two years. I've heard of musicians leaking their own songs. I've never heard of athletes leaking their own contract extensions. Again, new levels, Checo. True. Very, very true. Joe, what is your news item of the week? Well, this is kind of a a very much a Monaco-dominated episode, obviously. And I was assuming, given that Monaco's this is the last year of its contract, they're going to have to have some negotiations of whether or not it's going to be on the calendar from next year. I was assuming that the Auto Club de Monaco would be willing to compensate on maybe their horrendous TV direction, the fact that they barely pay any money to be on the schedule. Apparently not. Uh, The ACM are being incredibly obstinate with what they currently have according to the race they put out a fantastic video on this matter earlier today um it sounds like they're basically going to try and call liberty's bluff saying that they can't cancel the monaco grand prix even if um, they don't give them what they want well i would advise very much not doing that considering we're basically at the race limit already and liberty have made it abundantly clear that there are no sacred chickens in this sport if the acm do not compensate if they're not willing to negotiate with liberty on this the Monaco Grand Prix could become either biennial or a thing of the past. Brackets. Yes, finally. The, the first thing they could do is improving the very substandard catering. And then we can start contract negotiations because, uh, <laughs> yes, the bread, and, the bread and cheese did wear very thin after about three or four days. You know, give us some pasta or something like that. There's plenty of restaurants around that could serve us. 
That's a very controversial opinion from Mr. Spagnoli there, quite frankly, because I feel like the, the grid is pretty 50-50 divided between people who believe that it should never, ever, 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 ever leave the F1 calendar uh, and people who think that it's incredibly boring and they'd like it to go away. So you've probably split our audience right down the middle there. Uh, Bryson, what is your news item of the week? Uh, yeah, I actually have kind of a two-pronged news item. One is that uh, Marcus Erickson won the Indy 500, uh, someone who had the good fortune of being on Any Driven Monday with uh, on the show after Miami. Um, but also the other one is that there's rumblings that in 2026, not only are we going to have changes to the engine regulations, but we're also going to potentially be introducing active aerodynamics, right? Um, active aerodynamics, for those who don't know, it's kind of like DRS, but extreme, right? You know, the aerodynamics and shape of the car changing at every corner, seemingly. Uh, in this case, not so much to maximize performance, but to minimize fuel consumption, right? The less drag you have, the less power it takes to move the car through the air. And one of the ways that F1 is trying to approach their sustainability objectives is to use active aero to reduce the average drag of the cars, now, of course, this is all good and well, but active systems are banned for a reason. Uh, their failure modes can be pretty dramatic. And again, going back to Marcus Erickson, all of us might remember his crash in Monza in 2018, where his DRS flap failed to close properly. At the end of the straight, he was doing roughly 350 kilometers per hour, and he had an almighty shunt as a result and was uh, sort of lucky to walk away. So this is something that's developing. It's not uh, set in stone yet, but Pat Simmons and, and Ross Braun and others are certainly talking about the possibility of active aerodynamics, if not purely on the wings level, also on the cooling systems level. So that's something to keep an eye on for uh, the future. And if there's one person that I could listen to to talk to about aerodynamics all day, it is you. You are very much <laughs> our resident aerodynamics expert I, on, uh, in F1. I have to say, you know, Formula One and motorsports in general is so specialized and it's so complex. Even if you have multiple engineering degrees in relevant fields, you're still learning things every day. So I still consider myself a student of motorsport. I'm learning things all the time. But if I am able to convey certain ideas to other people, I'm, I'm happy to do it. Now, Mr. Spencer, it's time for your news item of the week. Off so we've had some news today, actually, that um, Peter Beyer, head of single seaters commission, has left his job to be replaced by a former Mercedes uh, advisor on a temporary basis, Shalia Anna Rao, who was the special advisor to Toto Wolf on an interim basis. Beyer previously headed up the investigation into what happened in last year's Abu Dhabi Grand Prix and was the first to really hint over the winter that Michael Massey's uh, position as race director was virtually untenable in a sense. So this was a bit of a surprise news story, although there were hints that Bayer could be on his way out. But yes, uh, an interesting story and another interesting uh, appointment by the FIA, but that's what they do. They appoint the former from people who used to people or vice versa. I suppose F1 is quite, it's a small sport, it's a small community in comparison to many others. It's almost inevitable that people will have worked for at least one team, I guess, in their past careers, right, before they end up at, at the FIA or at Formula One. So, yeah, it, it makes sense. I feel like that seems to happen. That's happened a lot in this sport previously. There does seem to be a, a, a growing sense of consternation between the F1 teams and the governance of the FIA. It might be considered a story this week that that seems to be bubbling over even more, especially with the arguably bumbled start to the Monaco Grand Prix. It's something we should definitely be keeping an eye on. I, I certainly don't think we're going to find ourselves in another, you know, FISA, FOCA war type of situation. But there seems to be growing frustration 
from the teams as to how the FIA is conducting its job right now. Absolutely, absolutely, Bryson. Couldn't agree more. But now it is time to talk about classic teams of F1 law with Mr. Joe Spagnoli. Italy is regarded as one of the most successful and important racing nations in the history of motorsport, whether or not they have top-class drivers to match. However, not every team from the peninsula can be a Ferrari. There have been dozens of small Italian teams humbled by the trials of Formula One. And if you combine a low budget with outdated construction and a toddler's understanding of aerodynamics, you end up with producer Royfield's favourite backmarker, Osella. Perhaps the quintessential example of Italian minnows in above their heads, Verolengo's Osella Squadra Corsa had the classic roots of a small F1 team, one modest season in Formula 2. He may not have won the title, but American Eddie Cheever racked up three F2 wins in 1979, and for team boss Vincenzo Osella, that was enough of an excuse to take his small sports car operation into the mincing machine of Formula 1. Osella gave Chiva his second shot in F1 as their one-car entry in 1980 in Giorgio Sterano's Osella FA1. Powered by a Cosworth DFV, like seemingly everyone else, the denim and white car was overweight and hopeless in terms of aerodynamics, but these were rarely the main issue, as the unreliable machine had usually retired before Chiva had had the chance to crash. One 12th place finish at Monza and a common inability to qualify in the first half of the season would set the tone for La Squadra's 11 years in Formula 1. The brutal reality was that Osella lived and died by their short-term sponsors and never had the funding to design a great car. Nonetheless, having found a reliable lead driver in Jean-Pierre Jarrier, Osella would notch up their first points at the San Marino Grand Prix of 1982. So, a win for Pironi, second for Villeneuve, third for Alvarezzo, fourth for Jean-Pierre Jarrier, fifth Although Jarier's fourth place was only possible due to the ongoing political machinations of the sport, meaning only 14 cars entered and five finished. Nobody knew then that this fourth place would be the best Osella would ever get, and later in 82 they were back to just one car, following Riccardo Paletti's death at the start of the Canadian Grand Prix. For 1983, the Italians would be served a financial lifeline in the form of Works Alfa Romeo turbo engines, but none of this translated to competition, as the Works blocks were as unreliable as they were thirsty, and, typical of Osella, heavier than their competition. So you were running an old Alfa motor, mm-hmm. with, which was a V8, and the majority of the field was running V4s and V6s, turbo, right. yeah. way lighter weight packages, yeah. which also had as much horsepower. Mm-hmm. So you had... A, di- a major disadvantage going into it with that team. Mm-hmm. And on top of it, my understanding is the Alpha Motor didn't like to operate for very long. By now, the team were well into their driver saga with Piercarlo Ginzani, who drive for the team in four different stints, although they must also be credited with handing debuts to the likes of Alex Caffey and future Ferrari stand-in Gianni Morbidelli. Nonetheless, Ginzani would be the scorer of the team's last ever points, in fifth place and two laps down at the 1984 Dallas Grand Prix. Mansell, coming fifth, had no gears left in the box at all. Already exhausted, he tried to push the car home, but the heat had taken its toll. He lost fifth place to Ginzani, but was given sixth, not just out of compassion, but because there was scarcely anything left out on the track except mangled wreckage. Even if Asala had designed a good car, they'd ultimately have come undone to Alfa Romeo's 890T, a turbo engine so untrustworthy that the team had to dial down its power to normally aspirated levels. 
The negative publicity cycle for both Alpha and Ocella only ended after 1988, when turbos were banned and La Squadra returned to Cosworth power. However, this move only heralded their worst season yet. Despite fielding the promising Nicola Lurini alongside the once again returning Ginzani, 89 was a disaster for Osella. The two drivers managed only 11 Grand Prix starts, only three of which were Ginzani's, as the FA1M's most common finishing position by far was did not pre-qualify. One final season in 1990 brought little improvement with an iterated car, now driven by Frenchman Olivier Griard, whose legacy on the grid is his penchant for blocking faster drivers. Over session, just about 55 minutes remaining, we expect it to hot up as we see Olivier Griard there in the Ocella. I have to say, really one of the, the have-not teams. Griard working around this uh, very twisty estrial track, a high downforce track. Ocella became Von Metal, who limped on at a base in Bergamo in the early 90s, but between the criticism, you have to credit these Italians for sticking at it for as long as they did. They may have lacked the ambition and resources of others, but Ocella's cult following was founded through grit, perseverance, and giving young drivers their priceless chance in Formula 1. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Um, I... <laughs> I can already see producer Royfield celebrating um, the male voice that wasn't uh, introduced before. He's so happy. The male voice that wasn't introduced beforehand is that of Alan Berg, a Canadian racing driver who now runs up his own racing school for aspiring drivers who race for the team um, for half a season. It was a pay driver situation. It's very messy An extended interview which, with him, which was fantastic. But I have to ask producer Royfield, of all the Italian teams you could choose to like throughout history, why was it Osella? Seriously, Osella summed up the spirit of Formula One: trying and trying and trying. I know Williams have gone from backmarkers to well beaters now to backmarkers, but Frank Williams for years was this backmarker, bit of a joke, 
wheeler and dealer at the back of that grid. But you know what? He scrapped and he, and he kept on. And what I loved about Osella was they, you know, they actually had drivers which weren't bad. And the cars, even though they were big and bloated, were actually beautiful. The, 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 those early to mid-80s kind of light blue uh, Osellas were just beautiful things. Alex Caffey was a decent driver. Alan Berg, decent driver. And they just kept at it. And that, for me, is the spirit of Formula One. I like the garage Easters. I like the teams that are kind of crap, where they just keep on, and you never know, one day they might nick a point. I'm, I'm sure they look very beautiful when their engines were on fire and choking every one of the fans out of existence with lung damage. But no, come on, Royfield. They were not the best <laughs> Italian team, like Batmarker-wise. Bat I didn't say they were. I never said they were the best. I said they were tries. I've, I've got a big... Soft spot for Minardi as well. Pierluigi Martini, him driving around that one year all by himself, and 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 he was big, he was there. Ginzani, he kept on coming back. Loved all of that, but there was something special about the seller because they were always last. Before we move on, I just have to quickly ask, um, Bryson, are you officially still a student of aerodynamics? We'll always be students forever. For all time, it doesn't matter how many degrees you get. Because <laughs> I was, was going to say, uh, if- you know, it's one of those things where you you just have to. You just it's it's a recognition of humility is to know that there's always more to learn. But please go ahead. I, I was I was just going to suggest if if your institution or your educational body requires a dissertation or a case study on aerodynamics, I would love to see you rip apart every single variant of the Ocella FA1. I know nothing about aerodynamics, <laughs> but no. I Google image that car. I'm, I'm just no. thinking, that ain't right, Chief. Look, I, I, I will not be co-opted into your <laughs> into your attack of this team. What I will say is that uh, designs can be complex and not actually make sense on first feeling. But if they work, then they work. You know, if you look at the Ferrari F175 early on, many people were saying, I don't get it. This doesn't make any sense. Why are we even doing this? It looks like it was designed by committee, but it's clearly fast. So you don't have to be able to understand why a concept works in order to benefit from it. That'll be my minor defense of this team. now gentlemen i'm going to pull you out of italy back into the 21st century because it's time for everyone's favorite part of the podcast and that is plonker of the week now bryson as our special honored guest i know that i've taught you a lot of british slang over the the past few months on clubhouse are you familiar with the word plonker no, but uh, it's an evocative word that I think I can figure out the meaning of. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, idiot, doofus, fool of the week, if you will. And as our special and honoured guest, I will not make you go first. But I will start with Ed Spencer. Who is your plonker of the, the week? The person behind, sorry, the catering in the media centre. God awful. <laughs> a free box Why is, is it never a driver? in the morning. Why is too it hard. never a driver with you? I'm too nice and too kind to them. The catering staff, you really think two, three boxes of croissants are going to feed 200 hungry journalists with photographers, plus bread and cheese, no burgers, no pizzas, none of them Bonico Spence, not even Red Bull. We had it confiscated when we walked into the media centre in the morning. This is frankly, <laughs> frank, frankly substandard. Mr. Spencer, I, frankly, is this substandard. just Monaco's equivalent? This is Formula One journalism's equivalent of let them eat cake. What is this? 
You're having a hard time finding sympathy the, the, here from people who weren't in the, Monaco look, over the weekend. I, I should add, on Friday, between this media session between me and Marius, I found a very nice burger restaurant. Now, Joe, I'm going to come to you next. And you are also fairly famous for almost never choosing a driver and usually choosing, I don't know, a cameraman or something or the drone operator. So who's your plonker of the week this week? Please let it be good and let it have nothing to do with food. I think you'll find it was a cinematographer, but I'm going to keep up my reputation because I don't think any driver (laughs) deserves it that much. Um, A name that no one would have known before the weekend, but I think everyone needs to know now, Iñaki Dureira, who is the chief strategist of the Ferrari Formula One team. What was that double stack? You just threw away what would have been a priceless one-two on both fronts of this championship. Iñaki Loreda, welcome to publicity. Welcome to being Plonker of the Week. Well, well, well. Funnily enough, we have the exact same Plonker of the Week, Joe. So I'm I'm flabbergasted. I'm overjoyed. Uh, so I guess actually for once we have a, a bit of a majority, but deciding vote it seems i guess is going to go to bryson who is your plonker of the week sir i'm I'm sorry but it's alex albon for ignoring so many blue flags man what are you doing i mean there's a reason why we have these blue flags there's a reason why there's a rule in formula one and there's not in other sports you don't get to decide your own impact on someone else's race you think you could overtake charles leclerc if he passed you prove it let him pass you and then don't do it don't tell us what the hypothetical permutations of this are he deserves a penalty, period. Can I just, just say one thing here, right? Because I hate blue flags. And I loved it in the 1980s when you had Rennie Arnoux, who was always known as the blocker-in-chief when he's being overtaken. And one of the skills that Senna was always credited with was that he could get past back markers very quickly. I don't see why. If you're racing for 20th or 13th and you get lapped, you can't continue your race. If they're fast enough to come up behind you, they're fast enough to, to lap. We do have that kind of, we do have a similar thing in IndyCar where it, there's no really blue flags, but of course that occasionally does see the odd instant between the leaders and the back marker. Jimmy Johnson, Roman Grosjean, they collided. Yeah, and again, I, I don't have any problem with the, the philosophical arguments behind not having blue flags. That's totally fine and understandable. But the fact of the matter is we do have them <laughs> in the race and they were ignored. So that, that's my point of contention. Your point, but, uh, your point was elegantly, eloqu- elegantly and eloquently made, Royfield. However, I will contest that argument with Monaco Grand Prix circuit. There was no way they were going to get past Alexander Albon if he just put it in the middle of the track. That's a fair point. But what used to happen back in the 80s is that in that driver's briefing, you know, there'd be a, an understanding at a track like Monaco that people would just get out of the way. But any other track where there's a decent amount of overtaking was possible, you just did your own thing. And as I said, it's one of the key skills that people have said that Senna had over Prost is that he could get through back markers much more quickly. And considering that the sport is now one for TV, that'd be another great component. It also adds the element whereby your junior team actually is going to try and block you even more brilliant don't understand blue flags don't know why they were brought into formula one they're ruining the sport just saying i'll go back on the news thank you but they do exist and as bryson very rightfully said they do exist and they are rules to be followed so completely agree we do have a majority this week for once 
on Plonker of the Week, we actually have a majority. Joe has chosen something that isn't a cameraman. I'm very pleased about this. But on sadder news, it is the end of the podcast now. I'd just like to take a second to thank Bryson for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. If you don't follow Bryson on Twitter, you should, at Natural Paradigm. He's absolutely fantastic and a very dear friend of the race directors. And of course, if you want to get involved in the show, please do follow us at race underscore directors on Twitter or on Facebook at the race directors podcast. We will be posting thoughts, memes and all sorts throughout the season and beyond. Please do subscribe to us on whichever platform you choose to listen to the podcast on. We greatly appreciate your support. And again, thank you so much, Bryson, for being on. And thank you, gents, for being such wonderful co-hosts, as always. Thank you for having me. We got we got through one episode without insulting Nicholas Latifi. Don't think you're safe, Nick. No, your time we didn't. is coming. We didn't. We didn't. No, we, no, we talked did. about him at the yeah. beginning. We very yeah. much insulted him at the beginning no, of the podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.